So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are alive and well, and so we pray. Lord Jesus, that you would send your spirit to come and renew us, to give us life where there was once death, to give us freedom where we have been enslaved. We pray that you would do this by opening our ears and opening our hearts to your promises, to your kind and loving truth. Lord, we pray that you would attend to your word even as you attend to these people and so that you would help me to be faithful in this role, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Jesus, here uh, in this passage, is speaking to a mixed group of God's people in Jerusalem. Uh, some of them were truly his disciples. Others uh, had become disciples but had not really received his word, it turns out. In fact, Jesus says to them, you don't reflect my father's character, you actually reflect your father, namely the father of lies. Jesus is not going out of his way to befriend people here. <clears throat> um, you might be thinking, well, okay, fine and good. Uh, these people, they probably didn't believe. They were probably just pretending. But what's startling is actually verse 31. John says, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So John wants us to know that it's possible to have been around Jesus and even around his teachings without ever having really received his word. Or as he says, in effect, in verse 35, you can be part of the household of faith, like a servant is, without ever having come to faith. 
Jesus tells them in verse 37, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. And actually the Greek there is more like, my word gets no traction in you. It goes nowhere. Now this is kind of a dark place to start, I realize, but this is where the passage lands. But I, I know for some of you, this probably raises fears. What if I'm like one of those disciples who thinks they believe, but they actually haven't received the word? It's terrifying. And the last thing I want to do is undermine the real hope that you actually have in God's word to you. Uh, and the reality is, is I'm actually sure of much better things for you here at CCB. So my hope this morning uh, is, is because I think for most of us, we actually truly do want to hear the word of God. We actually are interested in having received it and having it shape us. <clears throat> and so I think that uh, for some of us, while we are truly God's people, truly his disciples, and have truly believed, we have a long way to go in hearing and being taught by God, being people who know how to hear his word. Now, there are some of you here today who might say, hey, listen, hold your horses. I'm just here kicking the tires, okay? Uh, so instead of talking about what it is to be a disciple, I'm actually not interested in that at all. Let me just say this. I think this is actually a great place to start because what it means to be a Christian, essentially, is to be someone who, first of all, listens to God. And because of that, someone who also listens to other people. And this is probably different from uh, most of the Christians you've probably interacted with who, uh, as it tends to be, are much more eager to talk at you about the Lord than to actually listen to you and get to know you. Jesus, however, says that the way of living that marks his disciples is that they hear his word. Verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. So I want to take some time to reflect today on some related questions. What are the barriers to hearing the word? That's the first question. Second, what does the Lord do so someone can hear the word? <clears throat> and third, what does this mean practically for those of us who have begun to hear the word. So barriers, what does the Lord do, and what does this practically mean for us who are beginning to hear? So first, what are the barriers to hearing this word? John says three things. Self-deception, self-protection, and the father of lies, the devil himself. So we're going to take those in order. Look at verse 31 through 33 with me real quick. <clears throat> Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Uh, wow. The fact is, is that these people who are speaking these words are themselves, at the very moment, subjugated to the Romans. They, in fact, are in many cases uh, slaves in their own land. And politically, they've been enslaved multiple times. Generations after Abraham, they go to Egypt and they're enslaved. They come up into their own land and they are unfaithful to the Lord and so they're enslaved by various powers, whether the Moabites or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks. It goes on and on. They've been enslaved over and over. Turns out that this is uh, likely an area of pain for them. How painful is it that the God who had said to them, you are my special chosen people, had now turned them over once again into slavery in their own lands. The area of their greatest shame also turns out to be one of the areas of their greatest confidence 
the place where they display the most certainty and confidence. And it seems that they mean to say, yeah, we know we're slaves to Rome, but we are not spiritually enslaved. We're free. And Jesus presses here almost as if to ask, hey, how desperate are you to prove to me that you're free? How hard are you working right now to show me that? Because the things that they looked to prove their freedom only enslaved them even more. And so Jesus presses here not to actually shame them, but to begin the path towards real freedom. Their inability to hear and bear his word is precisely located in the area of their greatest confidence, the place that they are happy to display the most. Yeah, my father, uh, Tom, is full of all sorts of good wisdom. He would drop these little nuggets on drives to school uh, to his otherwise very grumpy and surly uh, sons. <clears throat> and one of my favorites was this. I'm just going to quote him here. You know a guy is really in trouble when he starts believing his own BS. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, so funny, too, to think about someone telling a story about themselves, uh, which they know is made up, and then eventually, as they tell it more and more, beginning to actually believe it. But uh, the scary part is actually that uh, I began to ask, well, how would I ever know if I'm one of those people? How would I ever know if I'm self-deceived? Because self-deception, by nature of the case, is very hard to detect. Uh, metal detectors are only meant to detect other things, not themselves. So I'll just tell you a story from my own life. This has been a very painful learning curve for me. Um, every year, the church I grew up in, in Seattle, their junior high and senior high would go up actually to Mount Baker and stay at the Firs. Beautiful, fun, snow retreat. We'd have ski all day, and then we'd have these talks at night, and the Lord was really uh, there for us in many ways. He blessed me. Um, so when I turned 12, I finally got to go, uh, and I was super excited, but um, growing up in a working-class family, we never had snowboards or skis, not to mention chairlift tickets or any of the rest of this stuff, so I had no idea how to do any of this stuff. And so we went to a rental shop, my dad and I, uh, to rent the equipment, and I remember standing there with him in the rental shop in front of the really cool snowboard shop dude, uh, who I remember as having dreadlocks, but that might be embellishment, I can't remember. And he asked me, hey, do you want to take a class on you know, learning how to snowboard? Well, not wanting to be embarrassed in front of the cool dude, I said, no, Dad, I got this. I can figure it out. Um, and really desperate to prove that I could, I wasn't just saying that. I mentioned the fact that I was a pretty avid skater, and so he should, you know, I should be able to figure it out. I, I can, I, I can, it can't be that different. Truth is, uh, the idea of being taught like a little kid was uh, too much for me. While my friends were having fun, I didn't want to look dumb and be left behind. Uh, in fact, my best friend Paul, who I grew up with, we were talking about, oh yeah, snowboarding, hitting sweet jumps, yeah. I realized I'm not going to be spending any time with him if I'm in this class. On top of that, being a 12-year-old boy, being a 12-year-old in general, it's, it's uh, hanging out with older high school kids, that's fairly intimidating. You don't want to do anything that looks dorky. And being in a class with a bunch of, like, seven-year-olds... <laughs> Uh, it was fairly embarrassing. It was too much for me to handle. So even though my dad and my friend Paul asked me over and over, do you want to take this class, I dug in my heels more and more. No, 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 no. I'm a great skater. I can totally pick it up on my own. So you can imagine how the story ends. We go, I strap in, put on the boots, I'm in the, the board, and I, I'm up at Heather Meadows, and I start nudging forward, and I start flying. <laughs> 
And within a few seconds, I have cotton edge and face planted uh, in front of everyone. Determined to prove myself, I got back up again, stood up, and pointed my board down the hill in a much steeper place, and this time I was bombing down the hill, totally out of control. I think that down, farther down the hill, there was this large man, I guess like 250, 280, slowly plowing, I think probably helping someone. He had no idea what was coming. I ran right into him. His entire massive body fell on top of me, and I, I think it bruised my chest bone. <laughs> it hurt for about a week. That was the point at which I should have said, you know, I'm done. But to give up now <laughs> would be admitting defeat. It would mean that my dad and my friend Paul were right, and I'd have to do the walk of shame in front of everyone else on the hill and go back up and admit that I was not competent. So I spent the rest of the day falling, crashing, face-planting my way down the mountain, one chairlift at a time, two days in a row. And I did it again the next year. <laughs> Maybe you didn't realize how stubborn I was. Maybe you already did. Um, <clears throat> The point of the story this morning is that it's precisely those areas where we are desperate to prove our confidence that we are unable to hear the words of others. We deafen ourselves. And our confidence in ourselves is actually what deceives us. And we do this a number of ways. We do this through uh, baptizing our sins. You know, I, I make mistakes. Or um, I've heard this a lot recently. I'm sorry you felt that way about what I said, but that's not really what I meant, so I'm sorry you got hurt. Uh, there's a lots of ways we do this, to use our competence as a cover-up. Uh, you know, I'm a good husband. Uh, maybe I'm not the best, but at least I'm a good provider. Uh, even the way in which we interact with people in grief, we have a generalized optimism that we kind of carry around with people, and so when we meet someone in grief, we say, hey, I'm so sorry it's been hard for you, but it'll get better, don't worry. What we're really saying is, I don't want to hear it. I'm terrified to hear it. And it's those places of competence, of confidence, of optimism that become important to, to us because they help us hide from the shame that we know is right around the corner. And that's the second barrier, the self-protection, hiding from shame. And we can see this in the folks Jesus is talking to. They get very defensive in this passage. Three times, they insist, Abraham is our father. Right? Verse 33, 39, and then 42, they say, God himself is our father. Right? If there's any pedigree, that's it. Jesus says, yes, great. High five, you're right. That's not the point. The point that Jesus is pressing on actually touches something much deeper in them. And they hope that insisting on their pedigree will keep them safe, far away from the shame that lies there. And you can see this in their uh, skepticism. In fact, the passage right before this, they asked Jesus all these questions uh, about whether his testimony is true and all sorts of things like that. Uh, they accuse him. In fact, uh, in chapter 7 and even later on here, they are about to accuse him and say, we know you have a demon, you're a Samaritan, all these things. Jesus lets them do this for a while because uh, he's kind. But one of the things we don't see is that skepticism... Uh, is a really clever way of keeping everyone else under the light of criticism and keeping ourselves out of it. It uses genuine doubts, real questions that are legitimate to ask, as a smokescreen for keeping the light of criticism securely away from us. 
so that we can never be exposed. And so we're happy to accuse and criticize because we want to push all of that, all the shame we expect away. But Jesus turns the tables on them. He says in verse 45, who among you convicts me of sin? What is it exactly you're accusing me of? In fact, uh, that leads us to our last barrier. Accusation is part and parcel of who the devil himself is, the father of lies. And that's the third, he is the third barrier. And in fact, all the things we've just described are what Satan loves to cultivate. Overcompensating, uh, hiding from shame, because what he does, you all know it, he whispers to us, He says, you are a slave. Prove that you are free. What do you have to show for yourself? Do you hear it? And so we scramble to find something, some trophy, something in us, something we've accomplished to prove, in fact, that we are worth it, that we are free. Something to cover us and hide us from the terrible accusations because they are just true enough to pierce They're just true enough to to get past our covers. And so we don't know what to do, and so we scramble. And these lies work, by the way, because uh, Satan has been studying us. You know how the CIA has files on people and stuff like that? Satan has a file on you. And he is much more attuned and aware of the pains, of the deep discouragements, of the places where you have felt God cannot be good. He is very aware of those things and knows that they drive and motivate you. And so he's going to do all that he can to prick there, to uh, irritate and get you to swell up. Because if we are desperately busy trying to prove him wrong, it makes us entirely unable to hear Jesus' Jesus's words. And it's no wonder We are busy trying to prove that we are free, powerful, spiritually mature people. It's no wonder we do this because we are afraid. But when Jesus says to us, friend, your slavery is thicker than you imagine, all we can hear is, thanks a lot, Jesus. You're really piling it on. More of the same. Already knew that. I didn't need you to tell me. And so we can't hear Jesus' words because we are already trapped. We're already trapped and our own shame, and trying to prove that we're better than that. So it turns out that actually, when we are in this place, we hear Jesus' words as satanic accusation. That is to say that someone can be speaking the truth to you lovingly, and you hear it as satanic accusation. Because the shame that you expect is trapping you. Now I said his accusations are true enough. He only says just enough to get you to respond in the way he wants. But he leaves out very important things. He'll say things that are true about your life, very dark things that live in you. He can name those, but he leaves out the important part. Here's two of the important parts. You are still made in God's image. And he has actually not stopped loving you. 
See, the lie that's implied in what Satan says is that your sin has made you entirely worthless, entirely worth ignoring. And I'm not saying that we have worth to give to the Lord, but that God has valued us, that God has made us in his image. And as someone whom he has valued, it makes our sin tragic, but it does not make our sin the end of the story. That's the second thing, is that Jesus does want you to know the truth about yourself, but not to shame you. That is Satan's game. Jesus is eager for you to know the truth so that you would actually be free. So you would be freed to enjoy him, to walk with him. And this is the difference between the gospel and every other religion in the world. Every religion in the world applauds that miserable, stubborn, foolish 12-year-old boy on Mount Baker. And that's because we not only want to hide from the shame of sinning, a legitimate shame, but also the illegitimate shame of becoming a student. We don't want to be humbled. We don't want to be the student. And so we paint ourselves into a corner. But the gospel, the Lord comes and says this. He says, okay, you belong to me. Here's what you say when you hear the accusations. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, my sins are there. They are much worse. They are much deeper. They are much more terrible than even this whisper of an accusation. Oh, they go so much deeper. But praise the Lord Jesus that there is no condemnation for those who are in him. Who can condemn? Jesus has died, and now he sits at the Father's right hand as the one who has risen, who intercedes on our behalf. What do I have to hide? Nothing. That is the gospel. And that is exactly what Jesus is after in our lives, that we do not have to cover and hide anymore. But instead, we can rest and receive God's word to us. And that's our next point. What does the Lord do so someone can hear the word? The first thing he does is actually he establishes trust. Jesus does not expect you to be able to hear his word without already having built trust. Trust is crucial here because when we hear the truth, it will expose some part of us. Not simply that we've believed lies, but the things that we wanted. And so our knee-jerk reaction here is to say, you know, when people have found out the truth about me, they've usually wanted it so they can mock me so they can exploit me, so they can manipulate or use me. And so we don't hear him because we're afraid of that happening again. But he is tender even here. And he has worked very hard to give us good reasons to trust him, that he wants our good. So I just want to think a little bit about who Jesus is, but then also what he's done in us that allows us to begin hearing. So first, Jesus, as the word of God, first listened. He was the first to hear. Jesus, the one who God spoke, God's word, is also the first hearer. In verse 26, you don't have these in your bulletin, but he says, uh, that which I heard from him, this I speak into the world. Verse 28, just as the Father teaches me, these things I speak. That is to say, even though Jesus has every reason to be the teacher, to be the master, to be the one who speaks, he freely and willingly submitted himself as a hearer 
first. Jesus was a hearer of God's word before anything else. And so God's word comes to us, but it comes to us in submission. God's commands already obeyed, and he comes as God's word heard and enfleshed. And that's the other thing, is that Jesus heard his fellow humans. You have to remember the setting here. He's not correcting these Jews whom he's never met before. He's not sending them a broadcast. He grew up with these people. He was in the synagogue memorizing the Pentateuch and Proverbs with these boys. He's been living among them. They know who his parents are. And he comes to them, and he corrects them as a fellow Jew, as one who worships with them, as one who understands them. And so Proverbs 18 is important here. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And so here we see Jesus, wisdom in the flesh, listening first before he speaks. Secondly, he speaks the truth at his own cost. He truthfully exposes, but in love. I said before, Jesus is not making friends and influencing people in this passage, right? Uh, in fact, as he begins to speak the truth about the nature of uh, their lives, they're more and more enraged. In fact, we saw uh, last week in Matthew that uh, this culminates in a great trial where he's falsely accused, whipped, mocked, and publicly executed, shamed in a public death. So when the truth comes, he speaks the truth at his own cost. He does not do it flippantly. Jesus does not expose things about us or speak the truth to us lightly. He's not reckless with us. But he's not doing it to show off either. He does strip away the vain hopes we've had and the idols we've worshipped, but he does it all for the sake of giving us true hope. That's the third thing he does. Jesus does not give us advice to clean up our lives, after which he'll let us in. No, in fact, the story of the Bible is that Jesus has bound himself to his people first. And then having taken on their flesh and lived among them, he speaks so that they could know the truth, so that they could know him, truth and fleshed. That is to say that when he says, if you abide in my world, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free, the reason is, is because you get to know him. You gain Jesus himself. He doesn't simply expose, he gives you himself in the truth. And so Jesus does not simply instruct, he sets us free. Verse 36, we have a share in his own freedom. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now all that's true of Jesus, but because he binds himself to us, it's also offered to us. This is who our Lord approaches us as. But what does he do in us so we can begin? How does this actually start? Well, the reality is there's actually something very deeply mysterious about beginning to hear and believe. Um, we don't really know how, and the scriptures aren't concerned to tell us the mechanism, but we do know who and why. What the scriptures say is that as we hear, faith comes by the Holy Spirit, and theologians call this regeneration. So uh, for many of us, we do not begin believing in the Lord by any great catastrophe or epiphany. We just happen to start reading the Bible. Or we showed up in church some Sunday, and all of a sudden, we started listening in a different way. 
And there was a new openness, and maybe we began to ask questions like this. What if the Lord, what if he actually really knows me? What if he's actually for my good? What if God's actually interested in me? And those beginnings of questions, those are the inkling of faith, the mustard seed, out of which God grows the entire tree of mature faith. But it begins with just this new seed of awareness that God plants in us. And I can't explain it more than this, and it's probably not right to, but I will say that this always comes at a time of humbling. Always. God always sees to it that we would be humbled first before we can hear his word. And that's because humility is a basic ingredient in being able to hear God, not to mention anyone else. So that's our last point. Practically, what does this mean for us? And this will be quick. What does this mean for us practically, for us who have begun to hear his word? Two things. Asking questions, hearing in humility. Asking questions is essential to the Christian faith. Uh, because faith is a posture of being ready to hear an answer. Uh, and that means that when we come to God's word, we are not its master, but we are mastered by it. We don't own it, we minister it. We are to serve his purposes and let his word have its way with our lives. Now this question asking is very different from the virtue of open-mindedness that's touted today, uh, because open-mindedness often has the secret goal of uh, never having any answer stick, of not having to live with an answer. It's kind of like a non-stick coating on a pan, right? I'm just gonna keep an open mind about it because I don't want anything to stick to me. Uh, but the reality is, is that our goal in being open-minded is actually to receive the truth. But this is also very different from the posture of many Christians, especially, sadly, many reformed conservative Christians. This is very different from the posture they have because question asking can sometimes feel like a threat. It can feel like a threat to undo not the Lord's word, but our certainty, our ability to grasp it. We had tightened down all the screws, and when you start asking questions, I don't know which screw to, unloose, to loosen. But if we ask questions of each other and the Lord, we will be ready to hear and receive his word. And that's because question asking is a way of exposing ourselves to the truth. I think for many of us, this is actually why we struggle to read the Bible. It's because when we come to it, we come to it as someone who has mastered lots of things. And so when we don't know how to master this text, we put it down. I don't know what to do with it. What am, what am I supposed to do with this thing? But what if our real goal in reading the Bible was actually not to master it, but to let it turn the light on us, to get into the kitchens of our lives, as it were? What if the Lord intends to ask us questions through the scriptures? So the second thing this means practically is that if you want to be heard, learn from Jesus. Listen and hear first. Humility is essential to hearing others. And this means a lot for the way we treat each other. There is nothing more tempting with someone who I don't like or who has something against me to write them off. Right? Oh, you know, they're selfishly motivated. They're in it for themselves. They're theologically imprecise. Uh, they're, you know, they're just culturally capitulated. Whatever it is, we're desperate to find something to write them off. And we do this all the time, especially with those closest to us. You know, my kids say that about me. They don't, they don't know what they're talking about. They're little. Not fair. Not fair. 
You know, my wife, she has these complaints about me. She's petty. She's emotional. What, what, what if she actually saw something true? We do this in our workplaces. You know, that employee, he's just, he, he has those complaints because he doesn't want to work hard. He doesn't realize the pressures I face as the boss. Or my, my boss, you know, he just wants to keep me in my place. Well, what if the things people were saying to us were actually true? How would we know? It takes discernment. I'm not saying to believe everyone. But I am saying that it begins with humility, with trusting the Lord. And that is actually how this begins in us. We can begin to hear God's word more and more as we really begin to rest in his love. You don't have to prove that you're worth it if you can receive God's attention, his shining face looking at you in delight. If you can rest in that, you will begin to not only hear God's words, but also begin to profit from them more and more as you drink them in. And so hearing and believing the gospel is what frees us from Satan's accusations and actually frees us to hear one another as well. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy that you love to free us, that you've spoken the truth to us at great cost to yourself. Lord, we pray that you would be doing a work in our hearts even now as we hear your words, that you would be giving us a new openness to your word, to each other, and that you would free us from the many places we're trapped. Lord, we pray these things because you've promised them, and so we pray that your spirit would do them in us tenderly but powerfully as well. In Jesus' name.